Hi, and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue, and I'm a novelist, a journalist, and an established art buyer with a shady past. Joining me is writer and professional girlfriend of the rich and famous, Jean Sutton. Hi, Jean. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Um, what I, I um, you know, a lot of the books for this podcast I've heard about through films or TV, or they've been adapted, or they were huge bestsellers. But this book is unique in the sense that um, I heard you talk about this on a podcast, thought it sounded amazing, and immediately bought it, and like it has absolutely changed my life. What made you fall in love with this book? So I came across the book when it was first released in 2009. My mum would have bought it. She's a really big reader of Chiclet. Mm-hmm. Our house is just full of Jill Mansell, everything. And she would find authors like Sarah Manning, kind of who wouldn't be as mainstream and mm. would push them on us. And I remember reading it in 2009. I wasn't a huge fan of it then, but I think I was too young. And then when I came back to it again in 2012, I like fell in love with it madly. And I think it's because... You know, I was around her age. I was starting to realise that money really actually does fucking matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that sort of, it you do change your mind over money and men as you grow older. Or like you become more aware of what a relationship involves and you become a lot more mature. And I think this book kind of ticks all those boxes in a, not a coming of age, but a coming of sense. And that's why I love it. It's just really factual It's honest and Grace as a heroine is just a really good sulk and young woman. And I I push it on people. Like I tell people to read this book. Like I think I've bought copies for friends. My mum has a few copies of it at home, actually. I love that you read it as I assume in like your late teens or early 20s and then came back to it with a new appreciation. Because I think if I had read this in my late teens, early 20s, I would have been like, oh, she's just a she's just a slut or whatever. I would have I think I would have judged her. But I think once once you have worked in the media, the way Grace works in the media, you know, you're like, yep, someone is paying for everything. And it's generally (laughs) someone you don't see. I say that to a lot of people when you see somebody and their success has come easily despite the fact that you think you're more talented or you know people more talented. And I was like, look where the money is. Like when you see a woman who you think like this is very bitchy and not feminist of me, but when you see a woman and you're like, how the fuck is she where she is? <laughs> look at the men in her life. Look at who her father is, who's her brother, um, who's helped her out, who is she seeing, who is she dating? And I know it's a super bitchy way to go and I'm probably the opposite of shine theory these days. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just like you have to look where the money is, like follow the money for people or follow the privilege and follow the look in well look and privilege there are two different sides of a coin so yeah I think this book is it's an eye opener of a book and I think more young women should read it and I think they will when we're done this podcast I I really really hope so I'm going to crack into the plot summary and then we can talk about it more loosely okay so Uh, Grace is in her early 20s and she works as an assistant at a London fashion magazine earning about £16,000 a year. She is also thousands of pounds in debt and has a compulsive spending habit that isn't making it any better. When she meets the older, sexy and importantly obscenely wealthy Vaughan, she's happy to go out with them until he offers her a very indecent proposal to be his professional mistress. She accepts and is immediately launched into the life of a trophy girlfriend having to hide her new lifestyle from her friends and colleagues. Um, so what what you were just saying a minute ago about following the money, uh, I think we're, we're coming at this from a very, very relevant place because you worked in the magazine world for a long time. I worked in more of the online media world, but it's very similar in the economics of the situation is that like 
yeah, there's th- there's hundreds of thousands of pounds of beautiful gowns that, that that go through the office. But meanwhile, the assistant who's like steaming these clothes can't afford to feed herself. Yeah, and I suppose like in Ireland, you also have a smaller unit, the magazines and what they make. So we didn't really have, fa- we had a fashion cupboard in one place, but it was mostly like Zara clothes and H&M. <laughs> so I was working in Irish glossies for a couple of years. And the whole thing is, yeah, the women in these worlds crafting these aspirational publications and like, you know, what you see with easings now from places and it's like what to buy. Mm-hmm. The journalists can't buy that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they can get stuff for free. They can call in favours. Like The one thing is you can get your beauty products for free if you're in that scene. Like when I was working in magazines and stuff, I had creme de la mer. I had all that. And then I left it behind. <laughs> and I noticed within six months, I was like, oh crap, I've got to go on beautybay.com and buy this shit. So you do get a certain amount of privilege with that stuff. But with the clothes and things. Yeah, like, beauty is definitely interning. a lot of it. There's a lot of beauty stuff around. And like, it's funny. Yeah. I, I had the same thing when I first started working at the pool and I was on a, a, fair, a pretty good wage, but like I had the makeup bag of a wealthy person. You know, experimental serums and retinol and acids and all this kind of stuff, you know, but like... Yeah, I always used to think my makeup bag betrayed a different woman to who I actually was because that your stuff shoes is so... are who you are. Yeah, <laughs> so true. I'm always like that when you have, like I was wearing old when I first started interning. Like how I got into magazines as well is really funny, and like I can tell it annoys people. I was basically at an electric picnic on a free ticket with my boyfriend, who's a musician, and I got talking to a girl who needed an intern, and that's how I got in. Like didn't go to college for journalism, wasn't building up. Um, a portfolio that that's literally how it happened it was luck and just being myself and I dressed like shit for my first two or three years like I dressed really badly because it was recessionary Ireland Mm -hmm. I remember my mum giving me money for clothes and I went and I bought two tops in River Island and a pair of brogues that I wore for years afterwards in Clark's and yeah you're writing all this you're getting all these press releases from these brands and you're writing them up and you're doing the Paris Fashion Week uploads of couture and I'm there in a River Island orange t-shirt that I threw out like my Marie Kondo last year and shoes that like I wore to death. And yeah, there's just a real, you get, you feel grim about it at times, but then you're such a robot. You're just doing the work that you're like, oh, this is just the way it is. And then you'll meet the PR girls and they've got designer handbags that they bought with their wages. Yeah. And it's just, there's a lot of, um, I think if you're soft skinned in that industry, you'll start to feel bad about it. Mm. Um, but you can you just move on. You move on very quickly. You kind of calcify yourself. Um, like, oh, this is the way of the world. You really understand capitalism. <laughs> so. You sure you truly do. Um, yeah. So so Grace, she works in this office, and what I love about it as well. Um, I, I, I what is the magazine called? Skirt, I believe. Skirt. Yeah, Skirt. and it's at the. Um, unfashionable end of Oxford Street yes and and Sarah, Sarah Manning did work in magazines for years and I, I think I pretty I know what building she's talking about I think it it might be the old Bauer building where I had loads of interviews and never got a job um, oh gosh but I, I love how like grimy the offices are because that is really representative of that world it's like the offices are depressing like they're not the googly shiny offices that you would think they are magazine offices generally like there's at least five lights that aren't working you know Oh, my computer installer was so old um, that one day I, I started, I think the first week it wasn't working. So my first week as deputy editor, I was like using spare computers when people weren't sitting at them. But like, yeah, that's um, publishing for you. It's it's not Google. It's um, not the wing, girls. So 
Keep that in mind. So we meet Vaughn on the first page uh, when uh, Grace is being dumped in Liberty by some musician that she's going out with. Liam, uh, yes. Liam, yeah. <laughs> um, what was your what was your sort of first impressions of him as a romantic hero? Well, at first he's not really described as being good looking. You know, she's calling him quite sharp. But as the book goes on, Grace's descriptions of him become very generous. And you can tell she's like finding him more and more attractive, which I really liked. So at first... Mm. because like you know how the book is going to go like girl meets older man um, I sort of like like I was rereading it and I was like oh yeah he's not described as good looking at the start but I know from reading this see I've read this book like 10 times so yeah. <laughs> it's like I can't go into it fresh at all but he's domineering from the start like I think when you read it and you think of classic romantic heroes you might think oh maybe he's a bit of a Maxim de Winter because there's a line later on where she asks about getting something from the minibar and he's like don't ask that again and that's a very Daphne du Maurier Rebecca kind of moment I find but he's very like a character in a Hitchcock movie called Marnie where Sean Connery plays a man in publishing who is just really domineering and kind of there's a lot of like animal husbandry stuff in it and that like he's kind of moulding this blonde woman to be his partner and I kind of got that vibe from it that he's a well-dressed man who spots a woman in a crowd and is like I'm going to make her into what I want her to be and I get that kind of impression from him and sorry feminists but I find him really attractive oh my god he's so So sexy so um, this this whole book is like what I I think it is the essence of the unfeminist wank you know what I mean? <laughs> because, yes. because the thing is, he basically, yeah, you're, you're totally right. He spots her from the crowd and he takes her, not because she's beautiful, not because she's funny, not because she's smart. She is kind of all of those things, but not hugely any one of them. But it's mostly because she's pliable, you know, she's she's easy to mould. And he basically trains her like a dog in, in, in a way. And yeah, like, like he gets her in that situation. He brings her to a private club when she's crying after being dumped and gets her to kind of bend down and do his cuffs. And it's like all power oh plays God, with him. Oh my God, it's so hot. When she does all yeah. his cufflinks, it's so <laughs> fucking hot. It's such a good book. I don't know why Netflix haven't miniseries this. I know. It would, just get, it would get rewatched and rewatched. Um, and then the approaching her as well, it's like, it's a bit Fifty Shades-ish, mm. but before Fifty Shades and not terrible. So, yeah, no, he's a great lead in it, but it is, like, as you said, a very unfeminist male. But you know what? Like, most men are. So, a bit right. of surrealism. Like, people are like, oh, the feminist hero. And you're like, where? It's, like, it's so funny because, like, when we were... Um when me and Lucy Vine were talking about Marion Keyes' Watermelon, um, we were talking about the romantic lead, Adam, and that. And he is like a sort of a 90s version of a woke bay. Like he's always like, you know, oh, I don't want to exploit you. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. And both of us were so bored by him as a romantic lead. You, we kind of want a fucking horrible bastard. And I feel terrible about that. Well, I remember talking about this a few years ago with somebody and we're talking about guys and I was like, isn't it great if you could go out with someone who you know is going to complain at the restaurant for you? Oh my God, that's so perfect. And the bastard, you know, (laughs) that you're like, do you know what? Sometimes it's good to go out with somebody who's a bit of an asshole. Like, not like that they're rude to staff and stuff like that, but like somebody who's going to take on the bitch role. And I kind of think that's a bit attractive and you're like, oh, I don't have to worry about this he's going to do it okay I don't know is that wrong I think that is such an amazing theory and I and I love it because like okay 
I don't want to get too like you know about our personal lives or whatever but I feel like I'm the person in my relationship who complains at the restaurant oh I'm that too I'm going out with Liam yeah you are going out with Liam I love Dan but (laughs) I'm the girl who works adjacent to media going out with the musicians so I don't think Sarah Manning would write an awful about me (laughs) um so eventually uh, herself and Vaughn, they go for this dinner and that the dinner and, and they go to an art show afterwards. It turns out to be basically an audition for her. She has a kind of an OK time with this very prickly, strange man who she's no, not quite sure why he's interested in her. Um, and then she kind of in that in that way that you only do when you're 23, 24, you're a bit like, Oh fuck it! I had a nice time and we had a good meal. Like I, I might as well shag him. Um, and she gets off with him in his car, and it's really, really hot. And then he, um, basically dumps her at her hotel, and then calls her three weeks later with a contract saying, "I would like to hire you to be my mistress." I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> but also, like, um, I don't know. Like, if someone's really rich and you're really poor you probably should have a conversation before you start going out and that kind of thing. Like, I think people are talking about money more now in relationships Mm. and laying down the ground rules. I know this is a very unique fictional situation, but, you know, like to go out with someone who's rich, you're going to need money to be on their level. So... Yeah, no, because the the funny thing is with the dynamic is that, as it's revealed later in the book... um, the only reason Vaughn has given her this contract is because he can tell that she's completely clueless about the way his world works. Like he's done this before with other women, but basically they have just taken, you know, the social cue and just been like, okay, and I charge this to your account and I don't even ask you about it. And we both know what it means. And with Grace, he realizes how naive she is. So he is like, here is exactly what I expect from you. Uh, so when they eventually have sex, it is... Some of the best sex writing I have ever come across, <laughs> literally. And she doesn't have an orgasm until ages into the book as well. And it's still excellent. I know. And I love that. I've never, ever read a book before where the not having of an orgasm was important to the plot. Like, I think that's what is so impressive to me about the sex writing in this is that the sex is both sexy and contributes to the to how we perceive their relationship. And I read like a lot of romance novels and often it's like if someone's having orgasm difficulty, suddenly their first time with the male hero, everything works and like they end up together. But in this, like she ends up together with the guy who it's not going great for the first while in that regard. But like in a lot of romance novels, it's very structured in that like she's having orgasm difficulty, meets a guy, he finds it on the first go and he's like, it all everything works out fine they're going to end up together and you kind of are spliced it with scenes throughout the book and in this book there's actually a lot of sex happens off the page as well mm. um, because it's like implied that they do some BDSM stuff as well it's just never written about but it's implied and I find that really interesting because there's a lot of books nowadays like they just go into so much detail and I don't want to be like a fuddy-duddy but like so many American kind of novels now like are just making like anal sex these big emotional scenes in books and it's just like I'm like I don't want to read about like raw skin as like some kind of emotional arc to a plot I'm just not into it and you see just a lot in the kind of NA books that are coming out in the States a lot Uh, but I think this book it's kind of before also a lot of internet publishing and that kind of 
a lot of self-publishing books as well that kind of push the envelope. So this book, like it is written in 2009, the start of the recession. And it does kind of um, straddle that because Chicklet in the noughties wasn't bold. It was good, but it wasn't like sexy, I yeah. feel. Yeah, it was de- it was definitely like fade to the windowsill. And, and you know what I mean? It was very like, yeah. and and even like I remember, uh, I think as Marion Keyes' books went on, she wrote more and more about sex. But I uh, I remember in Watermelon, just because I read it quite recently, she was like, um, and literally the, the, the uh, character becomes uncomfortable describing it. She's like, yes. Um, very good. Yes, I I enjoyed it. It was it was good, you know. Lucy Sullivan is getting married. Has a few sex scenes in it. I think I remember from reading it back in the day. So that kind of gets a bit naughtier. Oh yeah, and and uh, Rachel's uh, Rachel's holiday has also has quite a lot of nipple detail. But uh, Sarah Manning's other books, um, she's a semi sequel to this called "It Felt Like a Kiss" about mm-hmm. a young woman working for Vaughan, whose dad is a kind of a Billy Joel singer type or something and she's his love child and it all blows up in her life and she gets with David Gold a Jewish lawyer and that has kind of explicit explicit sex as well but like it's done really well but in this book it's like there's sex everywhere in this book from the very beginning to the end which is why everyone should read it and I, when I spoke to Sarah about this apparently she cut off she cut a huge amount of sex scenes and she even received a long letter from one of the editors that she submitted it to um, saying basically I am disgusted that you have written this book this is can we get that draft me. I know <laughs> Apparently it was 280,000 words long and it was mostly sex. But I, Why not? I, I can imagine it came from a place of, because she wrote YA for so long, of suddenly feeling like she was off the leash and just being like, cocks, cocks everywhere. Cocks for days. <laughs> I want to read that draft. I know, I know. I hope she releases it. And um, yeah, uh, what, do you, what did you make of moving on from the sex? What did you think of Lily? who is Grace's best friend in the book, who for most of the book, she keeps from her the fact that she's become a professional mistress. Lily's a friend for now, not the future. Definitely. (laughs) Lily's going to have kids. Grace isn't. Grace is going to be 30. She's going to be hanging out with Nadia. um, Oh, I love Nadia. Yeah. Oh, that's who you want to be your friend. (laughs) Buying you Fendi boots. Um, Lily in it, she's very much like an early years friend is how I would describe it. I um, so agree, that, I so agree. Yeah. So, and I also think Lily, you know, she's asking a lot of grace. Like, you're, you're in your early 20s. If someone can't make it to a major life event, who cares? Like, <laughs> I just don't care. I'm like, when people give out about that stuff to me, I'm always a bit like, all right, okay. It's like when you're looking back in relationships in college and like, say someone cheats on you and you're like, oh yeah, he cheated on me. Yeah, he was 22. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a bit like, you know, life isn't serious at that age. But I suppose Lily's having a baby and all that. And But Lily's going to be fine. Like, she's going to have her middle class life. Her father's going to look after things for her. Yeah, she's, Again, she's going to be the money. Just, just the North London yeah. mum who, like, buys a lot of Bowdoin clothes, you know. She's going to be an influencer. Yes, influencer mum. That's what's going to With be. With a, a mothering podcast or something. <laughs> and we'll regret the leave vote, but is probably also semi-okay with it that kind of vibe I think the best other female character in this whole book is Kiki yeah Kiki, her boss. Kiki's brilliant tell, yeah tell us about Kiki oh Kiki is Grace's editor and she is a thundering bitch but I love her because I love a good bitch there's so many bad bitches out there but Kiki's just wonderful and she is a kind of a mentor to Grace but Grace doesn't realise it till much later on when Grace starts moving more comfortably in 
Vaughan's world because Kiki starts giving her outfit feedback and when Grace's cover is blown at work, Grace lies about being a waitress as a part-time job and then Lily reveals the class that the class to our <laughs> office that Grace is actually a slut. Yeah, and a professional Kiki, slut. Yeah, and Kiki drags her into the office and kind of is like, you should have said you're a rich boyfriend from the start. And she starts giving her feedback on her clothes and stuff. But Kiki is also great in that Kiki reveals to Grace that she married money because her husband Charles, who's described as kind of portly or something in the book, isn't much of a looker. And he sent Kiki a Christian Louboutin shoe and said to her, if you want the second one, you have to come on a date with me. And, you know, Kiki's come from the same place as Grace and she's fought her way up there. And there's one line that Kiki delivers and it's the best line in the entire novel. And she goes, I've been poor and I've been rich and rich wins out every time. So don't you dare let any of those girls look down on you when they're being bankrolled by their families. Uh, Put it on a tote. <laughs> oh so my good. God, it's so good. And as well, it was, it's so, it's so unbelievably gratifying. When, as, as you said at the top of the podcast, like when you have been through the media and everyone seems to sail through with their mulberry bags and there's kind of, there's hints to wealth, but no one's ever allowed to talk about it in the open. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, there are people there who've gotten their true hard graft. And they're wonderful and you know who those people are. But there are people and they're sustaining a kind of a career that is inexplicable. And it's because to stay in media, money helps because there's going to be droughts and there's going to be like freelance rates fall and stuff like that. So, you know, there's people who work really hard and then there's people who like, forgive me, coast and I think that that scene where Kiki says that to her because all of Grace's interns are terrible. Um, or there's this particular um, girl come down from Oxbridge or something and she just does nothing. But she's there because of who her parents are. And Kiki says that about some of the staffers. They're like, oh, someone on the board's daughter wants an internship. Yeah. So Kiki's character, like there could be a novel of just well, maybe a short story or something about just Kiki and Grace's relationship. Yeah. Like some a woman kind of showing a woman the world and a younger woman the world and being really honest about it. Um, yeah, I loved Kiki. And there's a bit where Kiki asks her to describe Vaughn and Grace goes, oh, he's rich and handsome. And Kiki says something about like, well, that's a world of trouble for you. Yeah. And it's just really, really good. What I love as well is that it's very reflective of, of my experience of the working world where you do meet women like Kiki who are like come from like, like working class or quite tough backgrounds and they've made it like to the top of very difficult industries and they didn't make it by making friends. Do you know what I mean? It's the ultimate reality TV show. I didn't come here to make friends. Like these yeah. are these are not women. There's all a lot of like talk in the media about like, oh, you know, women mentoring other women. Da, 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 da. As far as I can see, that does not exist. Like, or it exists be- between incredibly privileged women. But I have never, like, I- I've had, like, brilliant bosses who are women who've helped me out and stuff, but you have to yeah, work same. so fucking hard for them. And you basically have to, like, pledge your loyalty. Like, you have to give them your heart on a tray and, like, everything else as well. Like, you don't win those women easily. And that's why I love why Kiki is e- hard to win over, you know? And I think as well, like, the like this is very Shara Sandberg. She's like I think anti mentoring, isn't she? Or you know, you don't ask someone to be your mentor, um, yeah. which I'm not a big lean in person anyway. But I do think I think mentoring as well. From what I see people doing it, it's privileged people picking out someone that they see as a contender, as someone who can help them in the future, as opposed to using your position to help someone up. 
Like I kind of, I, I think there's a lot with women who mentor that there's a lot of selfishness to it. As I agree. To, yeah. Like I, I agree with good advice. Like I was thinking of one woman I know, she wasn't my boss directly, but we were out one night and I said something to her about an idea I had. And she was like, that's all well and good, Jean, but you need to get your shit together. Because I've had so many ideas and opportunities I've blown. And it's like, I always think back to, I was like, oh, fuck it, she was right. <laughs> and I was like, that's actually more useful for somebody, like for just someone being bluntly honest with you than somebody who meets you up for you for a coffee. Like, I hate coffee meetings. <laughs> just like, I'm like, oh God, another one of these. But Leah, I think that Kiki gives a really good representation of that as somebody, she's not going to meet Kiki unless it's at like an event of a Vaughan crossover. Like Kiki's not going to take Grace for brunch. She meets her in the office and that's where she gives her her advice. And that's where their relationship takes place. Like they talk about their private life, but everything happens in the shitty skirts office. Yeah. And I also imagine Kiki as Anna Chancellor or somebody. So I think that's why I love Kiki so much. I'm just like, okay, she's like a really Anna Chancellor type sneering takes no shit. Who's Anna Chancellor? Anna Chancellor is Duckface in um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, but she's a really good theatre actress as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's oh, done a lot of period dramas and stuff, but she's Mrs. Um, Miss Bingley in Pride and Prejudice, the 1995 one. Oh, right. Specific. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm a big Anna Chancellor fan. So. Okay. My regards to the Anna Chancellor fan club. I'm, yeah, I look forward to... to, to Becoming see, a fan. Yeah, yeah, your next Substack newsletter will be just Anna Chancellor. I hope so. I, I feel bad for being as turned on by this scene as I was. But when he opens all of her bills in front of her... Oh, yes, I have notes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I love that scene. He takes out, out all her receipts and she's going through listen, I to intern after college. I take money in hand for that job. And he's like letting her go on. He's like lulling her into this sense of um, ease that she's like, OK, like Vaughn's getting this. She's understanding where I'm coming from. And then he just like tears into her because then he finds out that she's still in debt despite him giving her like seven grand a month. And he just goes, um, you're breaking my heart, Grace. Um, he sneered and God at that moment she'd never hated anyone as much as she hated him for doing this to her for raking up things were, that were best left buried in shoeboxes under her bed and I just like really love that scene and then he like makes her read out the number she owes and they don't tell us and she just goes up and vomits and it was just like a really good like him telling her like him making her confront herself it's like it's almost like the scene it's like financial bdsm he is like yeah. he is he's basically comes into her flat and up until this point he thought that she she was living a fine lifestyle and that the money he was giving her was basically pin money and then um and then he finds all these bills finds that she's living in squalor essentially and that she's got no electricity no heating no nothing and then he she just opens them all reads them out and like it's so torturous it's so painful it is like the worst kind of S&M and for some reason it's incredibly pleasurable to read because you've been going through this whole book with Grace knowing that she's got a shoebox and shoebox and shoeboxes full of bills under her bed and you're kind of worried for her the entire and you know it's not going away and then when he suddenly kind of goes through when, when it goes through it in a, such a kind of a violent way for some reason I was like oh keep reading the bills out <laughs> and the thing about the book is like because Sophie Kinsella's books deal a lot with money and stuff like that but it's like a journey the characters on some to overcome in this book Grace doesn't get out of her debt he gets her out of it yeah and I think that's a really important distinction that like he pays for her 
to get back on step one. And maybe like this wasn't as obvious in 2009, but like I'm like so pro wealth tax and I've always been pro wealth tax because I realise I'm never going to be rich. So you say wealth tax? A wealth tax, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just realised that like, you know, like with the Alexandria Ascasia Cortez stuff in the States at the moment, like young people are pointing out, like, we're never going to be rich. We're never going to be able to do this. In Ireland at the moment, you're looking at the housing crisis, you're looking at it in London. Like, what's Brexit going to do? Like, our generation, we have like concrete shoes in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that this book, it just kind of brings that home. And like, it's a bit hopeless that like Grace doesn't like sit down get a podcast about financial um, literacy, decides to snowball or avalanche her debt, which would be like, a, you know, he talks about like, why were you paying off the ones with the least um, interest and stuff? And why are you using the Topshop card and stuff? And um, actually the Topshop mentions in this all made me so uncomfortable because of me too. I know, I know. <laughs> I was There's like, so oh. much Topshop references in this. I know, because it was like when Kate Moss was doing all this stuff for them. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so in this book, like, it is actually a fairy tale in a way because a fairy godmother who she's shagging takes care of everything. <laughs> and like, there's almost like no lose. It's like someone someone that she would have fucked any way is also paying yeah. for everything. And, and actually that, that kind of marks sort of the final third of the book whereby she moves out of this horrible bedsit um, with the yellow ice in the toilet and then she moves into his house and then they kind of embark on this weird... It's like when their relationships gets the most complex because it's like domestic and cozy and like she's making them shepherd's pies and lasagnas and they're watching films And they're having together. loads of sex. And they're having loads. It's basically like a, like a honeymoon period when you first move in with somebody, but they're still trying to maintain this thing of like, no, we have an arrangement. This is an arrangement. You're not my girlfriend. This is merely an arrangement, which I found quite funny. And I think it's because he's so fucked up in the head. Like he's got serious issues that kind of come out towards the end in that he's like really low self-esteem, like lower than Grace. And he just can't cope with kind of this, that someone wanting to be with him. Like, I think he feels like it should fuck up at some stage. Yeah. And like, you kind of realise they go away for New Year's Eve and he drinks and says too much about his life and gets really annoyed that Grace knows all this about him. And when they break up, he's trying to be really clinical about it, but then she's trying to make the point like what's wrong with what we have I'm happy you're happy and like she says in one stage they meet her grandmother who's a great character in it um, a pensioner rights activist and they meet her grandmother and she's like we're not planning on having kids and I think there's somewhere else in the book maybe she says that she doesn't want kids Um, so like Grace is even though she's quite young um, she's very this has happened to her like you know this is who she is in a way um, like she's, and she's going to be in fashion the rest of her life. She loves fashion. So she's like a bit confused about why he's ending all this. But like in his head, like he's having like mini breakdowns and there's kind of like a flip between the beginning of the book where she's just been dumped and is having a emotional scene where he first sees her. And then at the end, like we see him showing up to her apartment drunk. We see him in Paris kind of like losing it over thinking that she got with an artist he knows. So like the last third of the book is kind of he unravels and she kind of gets with things like she becomes really practical which I really liked and there was like a flip there where in a way she's the one in not in charge but she's one in charge of her emotions that's so true I hadn't actually thought of it that way but it's such a clever point so like what what happens is for the readers um or for the listeners um 
he basically they're having a great time and they've really broken through to this place where they're quite vulnerable with each other and then suddenly he basically calls her at work to tell her that he's terminated their arrangement or he sends her a note I can't quite remember um, sends her a letter yeah sends her a letter saying I'm like yeah. I am officially ending your contract with me and she's just heartbroken and she doesn't understand why and like it yeah it does seem that like it's it's a very interesting sort of statement on you know masculinity in general where like he he finds himself falling in love with this lovely this young woman who is like completely blossomed into this really capable person in front of him and it's almost like there's nothing left he can do for her and it's everything has been i don't know he's like become the main beneficiary almost because he's so in love with her and then he just unravels yeah yeah it's a bit pygmalion like the last bits of pygmalion um where henry higgins Eliza Doolittle basically walks out and Henry Higgins is like, where the fuck is she gone? And like goes around to his mother's and like sometimes, like have you read Pygmalion? But like it ends like... No, I've only with, seen I've only seen My Fair Lady, like the Audrey Hepburn version. This sounds so um, kind of wankery, but the play's better. Oh, <laughs> there's, well. But there's a really good movie with Leslie Howard. And also when you see the play live, the ending changes depending on the actors because some endings, Eliza Doolittle walks. Oh. And he's like, go fetch my slippers or fetch my gloves. And she walks out and that's the end of it. And he assumes she's coming back and she's not. But then some actors do it where Eliza Doolittle puts her head back in. And she goes, what size? And I kind of feel like this is the ah. actor's ending of Pygmalion. It really depends on like who's putting it on. But Shaw used to hate people doing that. But like there was a great line in Pygmalion towards the end of it where Grace, oh not Grace, I mean Eliza Doolittle says something. It's a really good, I'm just going to get it out here. Mm-hmm. And when he's like to Eliza Doolittle, why can't we just stay in the situation we're in? This is fine, this arrangement. And Vaughn does make a pitch to Grace to stay in an arrangement. To basically like the renew the contract. Yeah. But there's this line where Eliza Doolittle, after the ball where they've pulled off, they've conned everyone. And she says to Professor Higgins, now you've made a lady of me. I'm not fit to sell anything else. I wish you'd left me where you found me. And it's just about like this man coming in and changing your life and then is done with you. And like what, like, you know, there's no yeah. further narrative for you to go in. And I kind of feel like that way. Grace, like, what's the point of Vaughn moulding her if he's not going to use her in a way? I don't know. There's a lot of power in this book. Uh, there really is. And and there's a kind of a sense of like, she sees, there's a point in the book, it's probably the most dramatic part where uh, she has to miss her best friend, best friend in inverted commas, uh, Lily's uh, wedding. So she can go to this really, really, high profile sort of art negotiation which basically she has to convince somebody's ex-trophy girlfriend um, because in this sort of world I suppose everyone who breaks up with their mistress gives them a parting gift that it's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars basically to shut them up um, which is kind of I'm okay with because I'm somebody, okay with yeah I think like you know if you break up with somebody and you're that stage or you have money like you know how much money I don't know I, I know someone, and I will tell you who it is after we stop recording, who went out with a premiership footballer in the 90s. And when he broke up with her, she was given enough money to buy a studio flat in East London. Oh, well, like, why not? Why like, the hell not? And also, she probably put up with a lot. Like, you're constantly probably getting an STD checked if you're going out with somebody famous. <laughs> so. But, yeah, so the, the parting gift thing, um, she has she has the flu and she's missing her, like, um, her best friend's wedding. And uh, what Vaughn does, he won't accept that she's ill, jabs her with an adrenaline shot in the leg and takes her to the meeting. 
it's absolutely mental and then she's sort of like in this hazy weird fluish nightmare meeting where she's seeing her own future playing out in front of her like being like what's gonna happen to me like am I just gonna go out with the next rich man when he terminates this contract and then I'll just like eventually be 40 and have a few nice cars you know which also would be fine <laughs> and like you know the thing is Vaughn is much older than her so like what's her future going even if with the happy ending or the happiest ending like what's her future going to be like when she's 40 or 50 even if they stay together yeah and, and he's in his and he's in his 70s or 80s or whatever yeah yeah so like the ending of this to me I love the ending but like it is very much a it's not finished but it's good like if that's life I kind of feel like you know you don't know how happy these people are going to be together they like each other um, but, you know, like, what's it going to look like 40 years down the road if they last that long as well? Um, will Vaughn ever fall off the wagon again? You know, there's all these questions. Um, will Grace change her mind about wanting kids? You know, there's a lot going on. And um, the one thing that does resolve itself is she has a distant relationship with her mother and they kind of become closer, which I thought was a really lovely subplot. I like I, I like that as well. I didn't like that it was yet another... Caroline in literature who is an asshole <laughs> I know lovely Carolines in real life I know but in books they're always terrible so we did we just did Chocolat for you know by Joanne Harris terrible Caroline oh. in that terrible Caroline Pride and Prejudice terrible Caroline in this book it's really it's a terrible name to be born with well, see I just have Jean Brody so that's yeah me. that's yeah it's pretty good though Mm, sociopathic in a way <laughs> <laughs> it was, there's, there's respect to that you know there's a kind of yeah a, Nobility to that. Um, what I really like as well at the very end, because actually, I mean, spoiler to any listeners, but like I thought that they weren't going to get together. I thought it was going to be one of those books where she walks out of the situation being like, you know what, you're a fucking sociopath and I'm great on my own and da da da. And I would have been disappointed, but I would have accepted it. But the fact that they stay together and he says to her, he's like, oh, the only reason you want to be with me is because of my money or you only love me for my money. And she's like, I like being driven to work in a limo. I like these things. Your money is a part of you and I love you. Do you know what I mean? Well, my mother made a point to somebody recently. They were like talking about their life goals and what they wanted. And my mother looked at her and she just goes, if you want that, marry it. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah. But like, if you want a comfortable life, if you want, if you want to buy a house in a nice Dublin suburb, you know, and you're working in a certain job that you're like, oh, it's going to take me years to get to this. You don't have a family um, cushion. You're going to have to like f- find yourself attracted to different kinds of people. You know, yeah. if a guy says his hobby is DJing, you turn around. <laughs> you just like, and I no problem with people doing that. Like I know girls and they're going out with guys living with their mind or whatever. And, you know, when people are like, what's the attraction? You're like um, the paperwork like behind him you know um, the gift they're going to get when they get married like his parents they're the attraction and like that's if people want that they want I would have been judgy I think when I first read this book of that because like you know I was 19 mm. and about to go to college and self-made woman but nobody is self-made um, even people who work really hard your family bolster you you have some emotional support that's really helpful that's so true like I think all success is like it's not an island it's you know Attached in the main or whatever your man says. So like, I do think that um, this book, like, I I like them together. I love them together. I've read this book so many times. I was really happy with the ending. 
I don't know, though, if the legality of two English people get married in America holds up. That's my only issue because I did law in college and I'm pretty sure someone has to have an American passport right? for a prenup to hold up or something. Because I have a lot of American friends and they've been divorced or whatever in different countries. Oh. And I think one person has to be American and has to live there after. Because prenups, are, well, they're not valid in Ireland anyway. Are they not? Um, no, all Irish um, divorce cases take place in camera in private courts. So we don't really have much of a... It's very sloppy. Divorce is new to Ireland. <laughs> so it's 1995. Oh God, um, I, I love telling English yeah. people about how divorce only came in 1995 and like watch them just be like, wow, it is a different country, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and like it's a five-year wait as well here. It's quite long. It's burdensome. There's legal um, and political appetite to change that but prenups at the moment but prenups are also most prenups can be challenged anyway you have a prenup if you're going to marry somebody who you trust I think um, like what's that Nora Ephron says um, never marry a man you wouldn't want to be divorced from or something yeah, so yeah. it's like when you're go- getting with somebody make sure you trust them in the case of a breakup um, that they're not going to ruin you because like I know women who've had to pay the men like the courts in Ireland aren't necessarily on the side it's not like a oh, you're a weak Victorian woman. It's like, no, if you're working more or whatever. So there's lots of stuff around that. So that's my only niggling thing with the book is at the end, the prenup um, legal factoid. I'm like, oh, is that, does that hold up? Because <laughs> case law changes all the time as well. But like, other than that, I love the ending. Um, they shag straight away probably after signing that prenup. Uh, Fabulous. They just, they, just, <laughs> they just shag so much and it's, it's always very varied, always different places, always different things going on. At one point, she gives him a bit of a foot job, which I find enjoyable. Oh, yeah, when they're watching like a TV show or something. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? yeah, which I, I just, I absolutely loved it. Um, all right. So uh, do we have any parting thoughts on the book that we want to end on? Um, Great book. Yeah. It's also got great descriptions of damp apartments, uh, which I appreciate as somebody who had pleurisy last year. <laughs> so. Yes. Agreed. I just want to say that if you're really into like um, crappy apartment descriptions, this book is one of the best. Um, yeah, my parting words is everyone should read it. It's a great book about money and women because I think like there will be a book out in the next while. Somebody will hone in on this financial stuff. And yeah. the thing is, this book will probably be better than that book. Because what's great about this book is that it's, because I think what annoys me about books that try to deal with this or films or any kind of media, try to, they, they, they're very vague. They're like, I'm really broke, but they don't tell you how broke. Whereas what I loved about this was that we knew exactly how much money was in her wallet all the time. Like we knew how much she earns a year, what her rent was, what covered what. Like I loved the specificity of that. Like there'll probably be a book in the next while, a kind of a Bridget Jones diary where instead of listing her weight every day, it'll be listing the money. Oh my God, that's such a good idea. Somebody's probably doing that. So you um, make it but, happen. <laughs> but the thing is, this book is so good, and I always like. I kind of feel like I'm reading certain books. It's like, oh, that book did that so better, and it hasn't got the attention. So that's my thing with Unsticky. Is I want, un- I want everyone to read Unsticky. I've been forcing it on people for years, and they're my parting words. It's just read this book. It's extremely relevant to now. You know, like we're through a recession, but like it definitely doesn't feel like that to ninety percent of the world, and. Vaughn in it and Grace it's a great love story like they don't say they love each other in it at all but like it's a great affection story I guess and a respect story and it's also about Grace just realising you know your life changes and you know you can also make those changes as well 
I'm being vague and kind of new worldy about this, but like there's a lot of it in Grace. It's like self-determination and choices she makes. Like she decides to be with Vaughn. Yeah. And she makes those decisions. Like I've met up with a friend recently and she said to an ex about like, I wish you'd asked me to stay in the city you were living in. And he just goes, I didn't want to be with somebody. I had to ask to do that. <gasps> wow. And she loved it. She was like, wow. Um, but I think that like, you know, this is a book about a girl like, yes, he's kind of molding her and shaping her and taming her in a way. But also at the end, she's making the decision because she could easily move on from Vaughn at the end and have a nice life. Um, her career is going fine. But she's like, no, you know what? Actually, I love him and I want to be with him. And she ends up with loads of money as well, which is a, re- a really happy ending. I know. <laughs> I was so happy when she had her money. Um, what about if this were to be made into like a Netflix or an Amazon thing, uh, who would you see in the main roles? Well, I think when I read it, I was really into Ben Daniels, this actor. Um, and I always saw him as Vaughn. This girl I can't think of because, I, you know, Suzanne Beer, who did um, Bird Box, was just saying about how the toughest thing in Hollywood is actually casting somebody who's not beautiful. And I think with Grace, the problem is all the young actresses, they all look like Lily James now. They do all look like Lily James now. I was actually thinking that maybe um, our our mutual stan, uh, Megan Fahey, would be great. Oh, I love her. I also love the actress. She's in The Little Drummer Girl and she's really sexy and kind of not normal looking, but like she's got that vibe and she's real ballsy and she's got a great throaty voice. Dan's writing down the name for me. Dan's been listening to this the whole time. Has he? Oh, Dan. <laughs> Her name is Pew something. Um, Florence Pew. Oh. And she's in Lady Macbeth as well. And she's someone who I kind of would see as Grace now, but I think as the man, um, somebody like um, the kind of refinement of Ben Daniels. Yeah. Like I would hate to see someone like Benedict Cumberbatch or Tom Hiddleston, even though I like I like both of them. They're just too... They're too obviously attractive. Do you know what I mean? There has to yeah, be like, a bit of a kind of a cat-like weirdness to them, you know? Somebody who like, you know, you see um, going into the airport lounge. Kind yes. of Well, to look to them. Kind of ordinary, but you're like, good in a suit. Because like, I love all the descriptions of the brands in this book as well. It's so of its time. Like, Marc Jacobs is king. And like, that just, that's not happening now. Yeah. Um, and also, like, if you look up the Marc Jacobs collection from 2007, 2008, 2009, like, you and me would recoil. So <laughs> it's really good to actually look up the brands as you're reading the book and Googling um, the fashion collections from the time. So that's a, it yeah. should be an annotated edition, an illustrated edition of Unsticky. Oh, yeah, with the kind of like white, shiny pages in the middle. That would be very, very good. Like, there was this one point where she's talking about this maraschino dress that she wears to their first date, and it's a chiffon baby doll dress in cherry red. It's like, that sounds horrible. I know. And like the broderie anglaise dresses that they describe in the book as well. You're like, oh my God, that is so Kate Moss of that time. Like it's just real. It's Kate Moss of the noughties is kind of what I see a lot yeah. of the clothes in this as. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, Jean, we should probably get finished up, but I'd love to hear a bit about what you're working on and what you're doing. I am a huge fan of your Substack. Um, Thank which you. Is what bi bi monthly? I think is it. If you pay, it's a lot frequent. Yeah, it's yeah. about bi monthly. Yeah, and I'm starting to kind of take that stance, and especially with digital media collapsing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I send out about two a month. Uh, I'm going to do one on Zumba next week. 
Oh. So, yeah. And um, what else am I working on? I've got my college. I'm doing a part-time master's in science communications. I have a dissertation due in the next few months. So if you see anything from me, it's going to be about wellness, (laughs) which I'm looking forward to. But I'm also like, there's only so many teardowns of Gwyneth Paltrow I'm going to be able to process in the next few months. But yeah, that's what I'm working on. at the moment, I just want to get my master's out of the way and I'll be doing my sub stack and other little things. You know what it's like, Caroline. I know, it's uh, all up in the air the whole time. Uh, mm. And uh, I think I think you're no longer on Twitter and you're private on Instagram, so I won't even bother asking you to promote your social because I know that you're a, a very secluded woman. I'm becoming more and more secluded, yeah. I might delete my Facebook in a few months' time. Who I knows? think you should. Wild times. All right, Jean, thanks so much for talking to us. Okay, see you. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell.